Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the word that was read. And now we are asking by the power of your spirit that you teach us through the preached word. May what is preached speak to our hearts and by your power, may you shape our hearts, molding it more into your likeness. May we come away encouraged and comforted by your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me just say up front that I believe the end is near. I am completely convinced that we are living in the last days. Now, before you write me off as some crazy doomsday preacher, before you tune me out, just hear me out. What I mean when I say that the end is near or that we're living in the last days may not mean what you think it means or may not mean what you think someone means when they talk like that. You might be thinking of those teachers throughout church history that have been bold enough to predict the second coming of Christ, which corresponds with the end of the world as we know it. In the 16th century, Thomas Munster, an Anabaptist preacher associated with the Radical Reformation, claimed that the thousand-year reign of Christ would begin in the year 1525. Well, he was written off, rightly so, as a radical. In the 19th century, William Miller of the Millerite movement from which the Seventh-day Adventists were, were birthed, uh, he predicted that Christ would return on October 22nd, 1844. Of course, that day came and went like any other, and descendants of the Millerite movement know that historic date as the Great Disappointment. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witnesses, he predicted that the second coming would take place in 1874, but that year came and went as any other. And more recently, you have Harold Camping, Bible teacher and founder of Family Radio, who died um, back in 2013. He predicted the return of Christ on three separate occasions. The first time, he said it might be on September 6, 1994. Well, he gave himself enough wiggle room in case it didn't happen. But later on, he was more definitive when he claimed that the end was coming on May 21st, 2011. Many of his radio listeners were completely convinced. They sold all their possessions and they gave the proceeds to his radio ministry that he might be able to spread his message even further. Well, May 21st came and went like any other day. But instead of repenting of his error, camping actually doubled down. He, he claimed that on that day, a spiritual invisible coming happened and that a physical visible return would occur later on that year on October 21st. I don't think I have to tell you that he was wrong. Now, so knowing, friends, the kind of damage that these false end-time prophecies have inflicted on people, on their lives, on their faith. I know I need to be extremely cautious when I speak about us living in the last days. So here's where I would point out to you 
how the biblical authors use that phrase, last days, in their writings. I, I, I want to argue that they use that term consistently to refer to an age, to an era that began with the first coming of Christ and extends all the way to our day. So, for example, the prophet Joel spoke of how the Spirit of God, who will be poured out in the last days, and then in Acts chapter 2, Peter connects what, connects what happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit fills the disciples. He connects that with the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. So in other words, he's suggesting that the last days that, that Joel spoke of arrived with the coming of Christ and the inauguration of his church. And so that's why the author of Hebrews could speak of the days that he and his audience were living in as the last days in Hebrews 1, verse verse 2. Or why the Apostle Paul could write to Timothy about the difficulties that he's going to face as a pastor as he's ministering in the last days. That's in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. So, That, my friends, is why I'm very comfortable using this kind of language. I'm completely convinced that we are living in the last days because Christians have always been living in the last days, ever since Acts chapter 2 and the start of the church. So, friends, what I want to show you, though, this morning is that a belief that we are in the last days and that Jesus' return is imminent, and by that, by imminent, that means that his return is near, it's close at hand. I want to show you that such beliefs have less to do with keeping an eye on the sky waiting for the clouds to break, and much more to do with keeping an eye on one another, encouraging each other to pursue faith, love, and hope, all in light of Christ and his return. So lately, we've been walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians. You know, last week, the text that we looked, uh, looked at was all about the fate of deceased Christians. What will become of those who, who die in Christ when Christ returns? Will they be forgotten? Will they take part in that glorious event when Christ returns in all of his power and glory? Well, the answer was, don't worry, they won't be forgotten. In fact, they'll be first in line in that great parade when Christ comes back to establish his kingdom on the earth. Now, today's passage stays with that same concern about Christ and his return. But now the focus is on those who are alive in Christ and how we ought to live in these last days, how we ought to live in light of Jesus' imminent return. So there are three lessons that I want to show you guys in today's text. Three lessons we can learn about the return of Christ. First, the return of Christ will be sudden and unexpected for many. Second, the return of Christ should be expected and prepared for by believers. And third, the return of Christ is meant to encourage and to edify the church. So the first lesson we learn is found in verses 1 to 3, and it's that the return of Christ will be sudden and unexpected for many. Now, to make this point, Paul makes use of key terms and metaphors that are familiar to his audience because they're drawn from the Old Testament prophetic tradition and the teaching of Christ himself. 
So listen to Paul's words in verse two, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now, the day of the Lord was a phrase that was often used by the Old Testament prophets to refer to a day of future judgment. When Yahweh himself, when the Lord will come down and destroy Israel's enemies and restore her to her former glory. Well, this idea of a day of judgment was carried on over into the New Testament. But now, when the Apostle Paul refers to the day of the Lord, he means the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul associates the day of the Lord with the return of the Lord Jesus, with the event that we know as the second coming. So look in verse 2. He says the Thessalonians were fully aware that this day of the Lord will come suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Now, that's a metaphor from Jesus' own teaching in Luke chapter 12 about the coming of the Son of Man, which was Jesus' preferred title for himself. There he said that his return is going to occur at an hour that you do not expect. So listen to Luke 12, verses 39 to 40. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. His point was that thieves never announced their coming. Otherwise, they would be guests. Unlike guests, thieves show up at your house uninvited, unannounced, and unexpected. They catch you off guard. That's what thieves do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be good at thieving. Paul goes on in verse 3 to explain that that's how the non-believing world is going to experience the return of Christ. They're going to be caught off guard. They won't see it coming. Listen to verse 3. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So while non-believers might assure themselves that everything is fine, that everything is peaceful and secure, in reality, their peace and security are illusions. They're like citizens of Pompeii, enjoying the weather, taking in the sun, telling themselves there is peace and security up until the moment that Mount Vesuvius begins to rumble. And then sudden destruction will come, and they will not escape. Now notice how Paul compares the suddenness of the destruction to the suddenness of labor pains. Now I'm sure all the mothers among us can relate. One moment you're enjoying dinner, you're, you're, you're out shopping, you're, you're watching a movie, and then suddenly the next moment you are bent over in unspeakable pain. And you know, you know that there is more pain to come and you can't escape it. Well, that's as far as Paul really stretches that particular metaphor, because mothers can at least take comfort in knowing that the suddenness of their pain is a prelude to a bundle of joy. 
But for the non-believing world, there's no comfort to be taken. There's no joy awaiting to be cradled in your arms. There's only wrath and destruction, and no one will escape. Now, that's Paul's warning to all who have yet to be delivered from the wrath to come. And he's alluded to this wrath a number of times in the book already. Back in chapter 1, verse 10, in chapter 2, verse 16, and here in chapter 5, verse 9. Here in verse 9, this is referring to God's holy wrath, to his settled opposition to all that is evil. And now let's be careful not, not to mistake his wrath with that of a child's as something impetuous or impulsive, as capricious or cruel. No, God's wrath towards evil is an extension of his holiness. It's his it's an extension of his commitment to all that is good and just. And because of the reality of sin and, and evil that infects not just the world around us, but our hearts within us, we are also objects of that divine wrath, unless, unless we have been delivered, unless we have been saved from the wrath to come. Now, I know if you're not a Christian, if you have yet to be delivered from this wrath, I know it's easy to just ignore this, to write off Christians as being alarmists. You don't really feel like you're an object of God's wrath. You don't feel like you're in any particular danger. I mean, sure, you would admit that the world isn't perfect and that life can be hard, the pandemic and, and the recent winter storm have made that perfectly clear. But overall, your life is fairly peaceful and secure. But because of verse 3, I, I hope you have a better sense now why your Christian friends are so compelled to tell you about the gospel, about the danger that all of us are in if we're not delivered from the wrath to come. It's because your Christian friends really do believe that there is a God out there who made us to be in relationship with him. But in our sinful hearts, we have all rejected him and we have gone our own way, making a mess of our own lives and of this world that he gave us. So this God is coming back one day to put everything right, to cleanse his world from all sin, and that includes sinners who have yet to be saved. It will be an apocalyptic end of this world as we know it and the beginning of a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I, I know that might sound alarmist to you, but honestly, how does that differ from all the apocalyptic scenarios that we've been warned about from those coming from a secular outlook? We've heard plenty of warnings about nuclear proliferation, about climate change, about overpopulation. We've been warned not to be complacent, not to be fooled by the relative peace and security that we enjoy right now because a, a cataclysmic end is coming if we don't change, if we don't do something. Now, I give the benefit of doubt to climate activists, whether you're talking about Al Gore or Greta Thunberg, I, I, I'll give them the benefit of the, of the doubt that they really do care, not just about the planet's suffering, but also about human suffering that can result from climate change. 
So if you can understand why they would speak with such dire urgency and why they would issue warnings of imminent danger for you and for the world as we know it, if you can see that they do it because they believe that a danger is to come, then I think you can see why Christians would try to awaken you out of your complacency about sin, about judgment, and, about, and, and, and to try to warn you about the sudden unexpected wrath to come. It's because we believe it to be true, and we love you too much not to warn you. If you look down at verses 9 and 10, you'll see that salvation from this wrath, this wrath to come, is obtained through the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. That, my friends, is the good news of the Christian faith. The good news that God did not spare his beloved son, but sent him to die for us on the cross, bearing our sin and absorbing God's wrath that we might be delivered and set free to live in true peace and security in relationship with our Lord and Savior. If you have yet to obtain this salvation, or if you just don't really know if you have been delivered, then my friends, today, today is the day. Today is the day that you can turn from your sins and you can trust in Jesus as the one who died for you. And then the day of the Lord no longer needs to worry you anymore. If Jesus has delivered you on this day, then there's nothing to fear on that day when he returns. That's really the message that Paul wants all believers to hear. The warning of an unexpected and sudden destruction, notice how it doesn't apply to the Thessalonians or to any believer in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So friends, if you are a believer, notice Paul is addressing here brothers. That could be also be referring to brothers and sisters in the family of God. If you are a Christian, then the return of Christ may be unpredictable, but it should not be unexpected. And this leads to the second lesson that we can draw, that we can get out of verses 4 to 8. That's this, that the return of Christ should be expected and prepared for by believers. On the following verses, Paul resorts to three images of contrasting pairs. Light versus darkness, day versus night, sober versus drunk. And they all communicate a similar idea. He's saying that as children of the day, as children of the light, the Thessalonians are not in the dark. They're not in the dark about the reality of Christ's return. So they shouldn't be surprised. They shouldn't be caught sleeping and unprepared when the fateful day of the Lord arrives. If we look back at verse 1, Paul says the Thessalonians have no need to have anything written to them about this subject of Christ's return. He goes on to say in verse 2 that they are fully aware of the eminent nature of this day. He's basically saying, I didn't leave you in the dark on these matters. Because remember that Paul's time in Thessalonica was cut short by persecution. He didn't get a chance to finish all the discipleship lessons that he had planned. 
That's why in last week's text, he had to explain to them what happens to those who die in Christ when Christ returns. He apparently didn't get a chance to cover that. But notice what he did cover. Notice what was an essential component of his teaching ministry. The return of Christ and the day of the Lord must have been one of his core lessons when he discipled people. Because apparently he had fully covered the subject before he was abruptly kicked out of the city. Now I find that very convicting. Can we assume the same of each other? Can we assume that each of us is fully aware concerning these matters on the return of Christ and the day of the Lord? I think most of us, if we're honest, would admit that eschatology, that's the doctrine of last things, that's the area of theology that covers not just what happens after you die, but what happens at the end of human history when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom and, and creates the new earth, all of those things. That falls under eschatology, and I think most of us would admit that's one of the weaker areas of our theology. We often treat it as a non-essential matter full of differing views and, and, and opinions. So we, we just generally believe that Jesus is coming back and s- to set everything right, and that's good, and that's true, but that's pretty much the extent of our eschatology. We probably wouldn't prioritize this subject in our discipleship of, of others. Because if I was in, in Paul's shoes, planting a new church in a hostile environment where I know there's a good chance I can get kicked out at any minute, I can think of a number of essential doctrines that I would want to cover. The doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ and His death and resurrection, the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, doctrine of the church. I, I, would, I would make sure to cover those subjects. But to my shame, I probably wouldn't have covered a lot of eschatology, at least not enough to say that that church would be fully aware and have no need for any further instruction about Jesus' return. So, friends, let's, let's learn from the Thess- Thessalonians and from their example. If you haven't given much thought to the doctrine of last things, the return of Christ or the day of the Lord or any of the other related events, then make it a priority to build up this particular area of your theology. Let me just recommend, let me recommend to you a balanced, biblical, and broadly accessible resource. It's a book called 40 Questions About the End Times. 40 Questions About the End Times. It's, it's broken up into 40 concise chapters, each answering a specific question about the end times. And perhaps you can be able to take this book and you can read it with another brother or sister in the church and build up this area of your theology together. Now let's look back at verses 5 to 7 and into these contrasting pairs. And again, Paul's point is that if you are a Christian then you are a child of the day. You are a child of the light. You have been awakened to the truth that Jesus is Lord and that he's the coming king who will one day return to judge the living and the dead, that he is our savior from the wrath to come. You can see these things. You are awake to these realities. So let's keep awake. 
and let's be sober. Let's be prepared for the day of the Lord. That's Paul's exhortation. We've already seen how for non-believers, that day will be an unexpected surprise. But for believers, the day of the Lord should be an expected surprise. An expected surprise. It, it, it shouldn't catch us off guard. It shouldn't surprise us like a thief in the night. You know, for a believer, the return of Christ should surprise us like how a soldier surprises his family when he returns home. Look, if you know me, you know that I'm not one who cries very easily. It's not like I, I don't feel things. It's just that I, I'm rarely moved to tears. Well, I said rarely because one thing that really does get me are those videos. And you can just find this you know, on YouTube. You can find plenty of these videos of soldiers returning home and surprising their parents or their spouse or their children. And, and, you know, most of the time, the family already knows the soldier has finished a tour. I mean, they've been counting down the days as well. And so they're expecting them to return. It's expected. But what they don't know is when their beloved son or daughter, husband or wife, daddy or mommy is going to actually step through that door. And when they finally do, when that day comes, that exhilaration that you witness on their faces, the faces of the loved ones, that is the joy of an, of an expected surprise. So church, those moments of pure joy that you see in those videos, as, as beautiful as they are, they are but shadows compared to the infinite joy that we will experience on the day when Christ returns. We know he's coming. He's promised us so. It's in the scriptures. So it won't be unexpected, but when it happens, it will be an overwhelming surprise of joy. Now, just think about it. Just as every family is prepared for their returning soldier, eagerly awaiting the day, well, in the same way, believers should be preparing for Christ's imminent return. We should be prepared. Now, don't misinterpret me here. What that doesn't mean is selling all of your possessions and quitting your vocation and abandoning your, abandoning your responsibilities and spending your days with your eyes fixed up in the sky. No, to prepare for his return means to spend your days faithfully stewarding the vocation that you've been given and fulfilling your responsibilities, whether that's in the capacity of a faithful parent, a faithful employee, a faithful student, whatever it might be. It means spending your days in the company of the saints with your eyes fixed on your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, discipling one another in the faith, demonstrating brotherly love to one another, and helping one another to hold on to the hope that we have in Christ. Listen to verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, 
and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, Paul, he's shifting uh, imagery once again. And here he resorts to one of his favorite images, the armor of God, which he borrowed really from Isaiah 59, verse 17. And he's used in other letters, most notably in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, I I think there's little to be gained in in verse 8 trying to decipher why he picked these particular pieces of armor. I think the important observation that is that he is emphasizing once again the triad of Christian virtues, that being faith, love, and hope. What Paul is saying is that living in light of Christ's eminent return means putting on these virtues and never taking them off. Put on faith, put on love, put on hope, and keep them on so that when Christ comes back, he is going to find you growing in faith, growing in love, and showing love to others, and holding on to the hope of his return. When a soldier is on the battlefield, he keeps his armor on at all times. Even when there's a reprieve in the fighting, even when he's not engaged in combat. He could be eating, he could be resting, he could even be sleeping, but he keeps his armor on. He never removes his breastplate. His helmet is never far from his side because he wants to be ready. He wants to be prepared at all times so that nothing catches him off guard. Well, that, my brothers and sisters, is the same attitude that we should have. Always faithful always loving, always hopeful, always prepared for the, for the return of our Lord. That's what good eschatology is really meant to do. Teaching each other about the return of Christ is meant to inspire within us a soldierly vigilance, a soldierly preparedness, It's meant to encourage you towards godly living. That's what we see in the last few verses of our text, in verses 9 to 11. Let me just read that again. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, this is the third lesson that we can draw from our text. The return of Christ is meant to encourage and edify the church. What's sad, though, is that eschatology is often used as a threat. The teaching of Christ's eminent return is often used to threaten Christians to get their act together. You better stop sinning. You don't want Jesus to come back and find you doing that. You're going to be in big trouble when Christ returns. Notice that Paul, he's using eschatology in a very different way. He's doing the exact opposite. He's not using the return of Christ as a threat. He's using it as reassurance, as an encouragement to weary saints. We've noted in previous messages that the Thessalonian church was a persecuted church. It's why Paul was kicked out of their city. It's also why he wrote 1 Thessalonians, because he was worried that all that persecution had negatively impacted their faith. So imagine 
if we were a persecuted church. Imagine if mobs, enraged by the gospel that we preach, dragged us out of our homes and in front of authorities, falsely accusing us of insurrection. Remember, friends, that that's exactly what happened to Jason and other Thessalonian believers back in Acts chapter 17. Imagine if our lives and our livelihoods were constantly being threatened by opponents of the gospel. Imagine then that if we're taught in church that a day is coming when all of these injustices will be rectified, when the enemies of God, those who opposed his gospel and persecuted his church, will face his sudden and unexpected wrath. Imagine if you're reminded that that day will not be a day of wrath for you because you're not destined for wrath. You're destined for salvation through Christ who died for you. And imagine if you're thoroughly taught that the day of the Lord will be a day of overwhelming joy for you, that it will be an expected surprise, a sweet reunion where you will meet with your king in the clouds with the company of saints. Do you see how good eschatology is meant to encourage you? Do you also see now how we are wasting our eschatology if it's all just about end-time prophecy charts, trying to predict the second coming, trying to decipher the, the, the book of Daniel or the book of Revelation, looking for clues to determine you know, whether or not we're in the end times? If that's been your experience, then I'm sorry, but those who taught you eschatology fail to really point out the point of this doctrine. They fail to mention that it's meant to encourage and to edify the church. If your eschatology can't help you comfort a grieving widow who lost her husband of 30 years, or to give a word of consolation to broken-hearted parents who recently lost a child, then you've completely missed the point of studying this doctrine. If your eschatology offers you no help in counseling a victim of abuse or in advising someone who has been swindled by a business partner, if you can't translate your knowledge of the end times into a word of encouragement to help fellow Christians to endure their sufferings and to hold on to hope, then what's the use? What's the point? Good eschatology is designed not to fill up your head with endless speculations, but to build up your faith and love and hope. The only kind of eschatology worth learning is the kind that helps you to live faithfully in these last days and helps you to encourage one another and to build up the church. So let's dedicate ourselves to that kind of eschatology as we live in these last days, waiting for Christ and his return. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promises that we have in Scripture, especially the promise that your Son, Jesus, will come again. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we believe that one day soon you will return to establish your kingdom. And we thank you 
that by your grace we are not destined for wrath, but destined for salvation because you died for us. And we pray, Lord, that we can live lives of faithfulness, lives of love, lives of hopefulness as we wait on you in your return. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement and comfort that it brings. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.